By now, just about everyone, or at least everyone reasonable, understands that blackface is wrong, that minstrelsy is wrong, and many of the more obvious holdovers from minstrel culture have started being phased out. And we've at least begun the process of phasing out a lot of the more obvious holdovers from minstrel culture. Aunt Jemima pancakes are now Pearl Milling Company pancakes. Disney is retheming its Splash Mountain attraction to drop Song of the South sounds and imagery. There are also some less obvious holdovers. A lot of modern-day cartoons and animation have roots in minstrel culture. Classic American songs like Oh Susanna or Turkey in the Straw included racial slurs in their earliest forms and have just been sanitized over time. And this weekend, as the horses take their place in the Kentucky Derby, thousands of people across the country will join in singing Our Old Kentucky Home, the state song of Kentucky and one that also has its roots in minstrel shows. The song was written by Stephen Foster a couple of decades before the Civil War, and Foster is sometimes called the father of American popular music. And this song, along with others that he wrote, became a global sensation. Today it's often associated with the Derby, America's longest continually running sporting event. Today on The Reckon Interview, we're going to hear from Emily Bingham, who grew up just a few miles down the road from the iconic Churchill Downs. In her new book, My Old Kentucky Home, The Astonishing Life and Reckoning of an Iconic American Song, she charts a surprising and fascinating history. This is a song that has evolved and adapted over the course of nearly 200 years, changing to fit the cultural mores of our times. I was shocked at just how much we could learn about American pop culture and American history through the story of just this one song as well as the questions that it raises about how we account for that history today. So let's go ahead and get started with this week's episode of The Reckon Interview. Emily Bingham, welcome to The Reckon Interview. Thank you so much, John. Kentucky Derby is coming up, filled with traditions that many of us only know from watching it on TV. There's the mint juleps, there's the fancy hats, of course, and then there's the moment where the crowd sings My Old Kentucky Home, which is the song you've chosen to examine in your new book. So why don't we start with why you decided to take on this project and what are some of your early memories of that song? Being a Kentuckian and growing up in Louisville where things basically just stop for several weeks around the early part of May and late April, you know, the song was just always there. I'm pretty sure I learned it as a kid in school as well, like kind of playing the recorder chorus or something like that. I certainly learned a lot of other Stephen Foster songs that way. And yet it just, you know, sort of we soaked in it and it was pretty and it always reminded you of home and Derby and spring in Kentucky. But then I got a degree in history. I moved back to Kentucky after being away many years and I started going to the Derby kind of as a grown up and even sometimes having guests. And I found myself in this role of explaining what they were to expect and what we would be doing and how you know it all worked. And the song was just part of that. And one time I was thinking, well, gosh, you know, where did this come from? And I had had some notion that it there was something racial about it, but I hadn't ever you know, really understood what that was, um, because there was something kind of a little odd clinging to it that I didn't smell perfect, but I thought, oh, it's been taken care of. But when I decided to just look it up and find out when it was written, first of all, I thought it was maybe a Civil War song. That wasn't true. It was written well before the Civil War. In fact, in the midst of the 1850s, when the crisis over slavery was very hot, I just I found out that it was a song about a slave being sold from Kentucky. You describe early on in the book, reading a passage out of um, Gone with the Wind and just sort of assuming that it was a song 
that was, you know, expressing nostalgia for the antebellum South. It was a surprise to you and it was a surprise to me to learn that it was written about a slave. So let's talk about the origins of the song and about Stephen Foster. Like you said, this wasn't written during or after the Civil War. It was written a decade before. Who was Stephen Foster and how did this song come to be? Well, when this came out in 1853, Stephen Foster was a white guy from Pittsburgh who was trying to be the best songwriter in America. And he was one of the only people trying to be a songwriter professionally, like full time, no other source of uh, source of income. Uh, that was just a totally new concept and, and radical and very brave, but also very difficult <laughs> because of the structure of compensation at the time. There was no way to make money on your songs except by selling sheet music. So that's what he was trying to do. And earlier on in his career, even before he decided to be a pro, he wrote Oh Susanna. And it became a huge hit and he got almost nothing from it because he didn't let, you know, he didn't have it copyrighted or, you know, nobody officially printed it for him, paid him for it. So it just, you know, I think he eventually saw this thing, you know, blew up and he realized maybe there's a way to actually do what I like to do instead of sitting in a counting house or, you know, counting bales of cotton coming off the wharf in Pittsburgh. He was in the midst of that, he was not fully independent, even though he was making money on some of his songs. And the most successful songs he had were ones which he sort of handed over immediately once he wrote them to the most famous blackface minstrel group in the country, which was called Christie's Minstrels. And so if people look at the sheet music for Foster's uh, songs in this period, they say, as sung by Christie's Minstrels. So that was a New York-based group, and they uh, were, as one um, critic later wrote, the songbirds that took Stephen Foster's music all over the land. Because we, as a society, have at least now come to accept very late in the game that blackface is wrong, that minstrelsy is wrong, even though still forms of it do exist, and it's obviously influenced our culture. I think we have kind of whitewashed just how pervasive it was as a part of American popular culture. So what was the minstrel scene like at that time? What what were these minstrel shows? Who was going to them? Where were they held? We've been told it's wrong to pretend to be Black people and make ourselves up and laugh about that or think that's funny. So we, But we haven't done the deeper sort of education or just contemplation of what was going on. And so I really like that question. So it was like rap. <laughs> I'm mean, not in the sense in the sense of its level of popularity and originality and the excitement that was around it. And everybody went to minstrel shows. They started as working class kind of uh, barroom acts that would, might even be before or after something more serious. But by the 18, and that was in the 1830s, but by the 1850s, these were full length, you know, evening programs that were running every single night of the week in multiple theaters in every large to medium sized city. And if you were in a smaller city, they came through as touring groups. And what it was, it involved at least four musicians who would also often dance and sometimes do solo acts and do small plays or skits that and humorous comedy routines, I guess, sketches that almost always made fun of something or were exceedingly sentimental. That would be another sort of 
angle on minstrelsy. Yeah, and they, they appealed to working class folks, but then by, like I say, by the 1850s, they were universally consumed. They performed at the White House. They performed in front of, you know, European royalty. They went all the way to the Far East and were seen by people in Japan before, you know, just as the shogunate was opening up. It was that big. Well, and you write about how the way that today somebody might go to New York and see Hamilton or see Wicked, that anyone who was visiting New York would go and see the biggest mental shows in town. And it's interesting how popular it was in the Northeast and, you know, the major cities of the North, because they didn't have that proximity to the violence of slavery, even though their economy very much depended on the cotton trade and all of the textiles and shipping and mercantilism that was born out of that. And so this was a way of kind of sanitizing and whitewashing white supremacy and, and upon which slavery was built. Yes. I mean, there was, it was like almost required in these highly developed minstrel shows that the end would be a, a walk around, a plantation like shout. It was supposed to be quite fun and funny. Everyone was singing and dancing because that's what black people were supposed were being, you know, shown to be doing. This is the imagine and imagined uh, picture of blackness that was packaged and sold over and over again for the entertainment of people all over this country. Yeah. And even though they were using musical instruments like the banjo, which did come over with enslaved people from Africa, my understanding is that minstrel music itself doesn't have much roots in African music the way that rhythm and blues does, or even the way that, you know, arguably country music does. This music was more driven by polka or Celtic sounds and things like that. Early in our critical, so once it kind of became embraced as this American thing, first of it, was, at first it was sort of like, oh, that's kind of low class, but, but eventually kind of everyone agreed this was the most American thing we had. And it was celebrated by critics generally. But some of those critics really did kind of make this argument that it brought together all these wonderful things about America. And that was really even 50 years later, early 20th century. More recently, I would say there's been a lot of revision of that in the sense of the music. There's something to be said about the dance that, and some of the moves that were used on stage in minstrel shows that may have had some roots. And then there's an interesting argument that Stephen Foster in creating these songs, these with choruses and the minstrel, you know, four person band could sort of be seen as this, you know, opening to American pop music, pop music, right? Like the four man band and percussion and guitar sounds and vocals and choruses. But no, I, I don't think the music of minstrel songs is deeply inauthentic. Let's just put it that way. Right. And you write about how even though it was very inauthentic, it was being praised by white northern audiences and critics for its quote-unquote authenticity. So everybody was just kind of internalizing these ideas of, you know, the happy slaves. And this is also when we start to see the characters of Jim Crow and things like that pop up, which we'll later associate with, you know, kind of the post-Reconstruction era in the South. But Jim Crow was one of the popular minstrel characters at the time. Jim Crow, Zip Coon, the wench as a female character. These were white men in blackface dressing, cross-dressing to represent black femininity, exclusively negative ways. So those become archetypes 
that if you you know read into the history of blackface and early American performance vaudeville and into the silent movie and talking movie eras all continue to play a mammy character or a or a seductive oversexual character uh, on the women's side a, a bumbling or pathetic black man um, or on the other hand a, a violent and untrustworthy schemer who would usually be a free man of color that would be like a zip coon whereas the uncle tom or the jim crow would be more of a bumbling, but perhaps a good dancer. <laughs> yeah, you mentioned, you know, you see this in early movies. You also see this in kind of the early days of American cartoons uh, with, you know, Mickey Mouse whistling Turkey in the Straw, I think, and Bugs Bunny. And, you know, a lot of these characters early on were were using this music that was coming out of this menstrual age. And so you've got Stephen Foster who comes into this and he kind of perfects the genre. He writes the songs that we're talking about today with My Old Kentucky Home, Oh Susanna, uh, Camp Down Races. And like you said, some consider him, quote unquote, the father of American pop music. He was also responding at that time to the phenomenal popularity of Uncle Tom's Cabin. So how does that factor into the popularity of this song? So not until the 1930s was it absolutely proven that he was building off the popularity of Uncle Tom's Cabin. But if you read even the published lyrics of the song alongside a knowledge, a basic knowledge of the plot of Uncle Tom's Cabin, they do line right up. In the 1930s, a millionaire named J.K. Lilly of drug company fame became a foster collector, and he was able to purchase a... um, a sketchbook, like a notebook that was full of all kinds of drafts and accounts and notes that Foster kept. And among them was an early draft of this very song. And it was called Not My Old Kentucky Home, but Old Uncle Tom, Good Night. And it is almost exactly the same song, except it has Black dialect. And the chorus, instead of saying, weep no more, my lady, says something about there'll be a better place for you after everything's over, dear Uncle Tom, which refers to the actual death of Uncle Tom, which is a huge 19th century. I mean, it's a, you know, seminal literary and performative image of the 19th century, because the death of Uncle Tom at the hands of a cruel overseer in the Deep South, at this sort of religious apotheosis that Harriet Beecher Stowe was trying to show that how terrible slavery could be. And it's true that Uncle Tom novel starts out in Kentucky on a plantation where he is, you know, seemingly treated pretty well. And then the debts of his owner mean that somebody has to go and he is selected to be sold. All of that gets very elided in Foster's song. The debts, I like to say the debts and the decision to sell becomes simply hard times come. We don't know what that is, but hard times come and the darkies have to part is what they say. That is, uh, that's part of it. But he took out the dialect and he cleaned up the song. And I like to say that Stephen Foster not only mastered the art of blackface minstrelsy with a song like 
Oh, Susanna or Camptown Races, but he gentrified it as well. He made it safer for middle-class consumers to have in their homes and adopt into their hearts because it was less other, and yet it was still other. You know, it was still about the South. It was still about slavery. It was still about a plantation. So yeah, it's fascinating that he clearly saw the marketability of the overall narrative, but that he backed away from the specificity of it because I can only think that he didn't want to be associated with something as overtly anti-slavery as Uncle Tom Cabin was perceived to be. That might drive off some of his possible market. This song and the original lyrics is a story about a slave that is leaving Kentucky. And it, it kind of suggests the notion that slavery is just kind of the natural condition of Black people, and it's going to be in, in perpetuity. What's the original storyline here? And what parts will be changed to the story that we have today? Right. So the original song does tell of, a, of someone having a happy home the young folks rolling on the little cabin floor where this person has been living and then him having to part and the good times that they've been sharing in the past, like hunting for possums and coons. These are also extremely stereotyped activities and singing by the old cabin door would have to end when he you know, is being taken away, but he's reflecting on those good times and asking the person left behind, this is one of my other bugaboos, he says, weep no more, my lady, weep no more today. We will sing one song for my old Kentucky home, my old Kentucky home far away, or the old Kentucky home far away. And so he's sort of comforting somebody, right, about someone who's been left behind. And I think in Stephen Foster's day, uh, again, sort of aligning with Uncle Tom's cabin, the imagined person left behind is another slave, someone he maybe shared the home with. But in fact, over time, the iconography of both the home that has been broken and the person left behind completely revolutionized from being a cabin home to being a big plantation mansion and the woman left behind from being a perhaps possibly, you know, his partner uh, or wife to being the mistress of that plantation home. And so when I see the weep no more, my lady, I mean, just, I can't tell you how many images of that have been put out there, especially over the late 19th and early 20th century of weeping white women. Well, and it's interesting because the original lyrics have words like darkies in it, and that gets whitewashed and sanitized over time. And now, you know, if you're just listening to the song being sung, watching the Kentucky Derby, it just kind of has this vague sense of nostalgia to it, similar to the way you know, Stephen Foster, as we said, was not from Kentucky. He passed through Kentucky once on, on a riverboat, but similar to the way that John Denver is not from West Virginia, but of course wrote Country Roads Take Me Home. And that's another song that kind of just evokes in the listener a sense of nostalgia, not even for me, for West Virginia or for Kentucky, but for a sense of home somewhere else. You know, maybe that's why this, one of the reasons why this song has endured so much is that it, when you're singing it and hearing it, you're not necessarily thinking of that original storyline. You're thinking of your home in Kentucky. 
And that's absolutely, again, Foster's genius of taking this specific, you know, setting of plantation setting and then turning it into something universal. And if that were really about sympathizing universally, that would be interesting uh, and extremely powerful. That's not the way the song has been used in, from what I can tell after years of research. But, you know, what happens is over time, that D word, I, I like to call it, gets taken out. It's protested seriously by folks who find it really offensive and eventually it's taken out. But it does, I think there's sort of a really fascinating thing that happens there. And, and the home stays all along. Of course, the home is the constant. And the irony being that, you know, we are able to think of any home that may belong to us or our parents or a home we even want in the future when it, it was this enslaved people's home that is being cracked. You know, Foster ends up with something that is universal and yet is based on this pain that is not universal, in fact, and that is clearly stratified. You know, it, it's remarkable. Coming up after the break, more from Emily Bingham about my old Kentucky home and the history of American horse racing. Hey guys, if you've been listening to this interview and you've wanted to jump in with ideas of your own, then you may want to sign up for The Conversation, our weekly newsletter that dives into some of the topics that we raise on the show and other issues in the South. You can sign up for it at ReckonSouth.com newsletters. And that kind of parallels the history of the Kentucky Derby itself, right? I don't know when this song became associated with singing at the Derby, but my understanding is that the early Derby jockeys were almost always black men. The, the mint julep, the, you know, the iconic drink was was created by a black bartender. And so, you know, over time, black representation and culture has been deliberately kind of whitewashed from the Derby experience. And it's been made kind of a tribute to Kentucky aristocracy. What were the early Derbies like? And, and when did this transformation start happening? I think the number is eight of the first 15 derbies were won by black jockeys. And even as late as the 1890s, there would be Kentucky derbies where there were only black jockeys in the race. Yeah, the derby begins in 1875 and it sort of struggles along for its first decades and truly gets stabilized in the early 20th century. And my old Kentucky home does not become a part of that actual formal part of the of the event and tradition until 1930, rather late in a way. But I think that Louisville and Kentucky have always kind of gone back and forth about whether they're the South really or, or not. Kentucky, as many of your listeners will know, did not join the Confederacy. Many people fought on both sides in that many, many Black soldiers also enlisted in Kentucky, huge numbers. So the, the whitewashing of the Derby in terms of the memory of Black jockeys and the contributions of, of Black horsemen in general is something that the sport and the event and uh, historians have been trying to you know, start to deal with, I'd say. And I think that the coming, you know, the institutionalization of my old Kentucky home as part of it really enters the scene 
as that whitewashing was completed in the Jim Crow era. By the time My Old Kentucky Home enters in 1930, it would have been almost two decades since a black jockey had been riding a derby horse. And black jockeys, after being dominant, were fully excluded from the sport. And it's kind of in the opposite way that many other major American sports went. They started out integrated and then segregated and or not even segregated, just eliminated. (laughs) And then whereas in, you know, other sports like baseball, you see the segregation and then the desegregation. Well, it just still hasn't really happened. And it really killed so many of the opportunities for black horsemen that it it just left. And you kind of introduced the idea that the use of my old Kentucky home as a state song as the song of the Derby is kind of a sonic Confederate monument that this is happening at the same time that all of these monuments to the Confederacy are going up in the South, not necessarily the exact same time, but in the the same general premise. And when they're also, like you said, eliminating Black jockeys and Black horsemen from the race and, and kind of instilling this sense of white supremacy and using a song like this to do so. And so I think that's interesting. But there was always pushback. Everyone loves the song Who's White. It's a national song. It's about the South, but it's popular all through the country. It went, it aligned really well with the Daughters of the Confederacy and the erecting of Confederate monuments, but it was the American culture and cultural inheritance that they were also able to draw on in adopting that song. So it straddles, even though it sounds South, the memory of the people who heard it would have, have heard that in, you know, like, a, you know, New York City or Baltimore or Buffalo. So, but there was always pushback to some degree <laughs> and varying degrees. And it started in like with Joshua Carter Simpson in the 1850s <laughs> saying, no, if you're going to sing this song, it needs different kinds of lyrics if you want to help Black people. Uh, moving into like 1914, early in the history of the NAACP, there's a protest of Black parents whose children in Boston are being taught from a songbook, this song and other minstrel songs that contain language that they find demeaning and humiliating and racist. And they protested to the school board. And there's a wonderful quote in a newspaper of the chair of the school board in 1914 saying, and he is white, he says, I always thought the term under question was a, in the case of my old Kentucky home, the the D word was a term of affection. It never occurred to me that it was a term of opprobrium. And that is a almost unique example (laughs) of a white person hearing, truly hearing the complaint of Black Americans about this song and taking action because the rest of the history is almost exclusively of here, you know, any such complaints were dismissed. You also write about the example of Black performers subverting the idea of My Old Kentucky Home, Henrietta Vinton Davis being one example. So tell us about who she was and what that story is. Right. So Henrietta Vinton Davis wrote an entire play called Our Old Kentucky Home. She was working with a Black journalist who was in New York, who was a friend of hers. But she was born in Baltimore, grew up in D.C. She was in the 1870s during Reconstruction, became a teacher and went from her home to teach as a teenager in Mississippi. 
and then comes back to DC and works under Frederick Douglass, the Office of Recorder of Deeds in Washington, which was kind of like the best job a Black woman in America could probably get. She must have been pretty brilliant just in, in every way. And later she becomes the first Black elocutionist. This was a kind of entertainer or, or performer that was one step up from being a stage actor, which you know, respectable women weren't really supposed to do at all. So elocution was delivering famous speeches from plays or or literature and or political speeches sometimes as well. And she was launching herself in that and made a bit of a career of it. But as she got into it, the theater world, which was briefly open in the late in the early 1880s to black performers, became even more difficult. And so her opportunities got narrower and narrower. And I think out of her, truly out of her rage at the limits placed on her and others of her race, she produced a an upside-down play about this song, which so many black performers had been required to sing, honestly, like in the post-Civil War era, if they were going to get on stage and, you know, they were almost always managed by white people, the white audiences wanted songs like My Old Kentucky Home. So they had had to sing the songs. And Henrietta Vinton Davis created a story about a Kentucky plantation in which all the main characters are all black. They are enslaved. They contribute to the um, Union victory directly <laughs> in the Civil War. They beat off. She fights off. Uh, she herself plays the main character, fights off the sexual assaults of white plantation owners. And she is defended and united at the end with an ex-slave who is also a military hero. And they buy the old Kentucky home from the impoverished uh, enslavers and set up a kind of utopia where older enslaved people can live out their lives in peace and dignity, and they can have a chance at you know being uh, the American dream, having their own home and starting their own business and their own success. So she took this show on the road in the 1890s, and it was extremely risky. It was, she was maybe the ballsiest Black actor uh, of the turn of the century because having an integrated cast is remarkable. It was, you know, there were Jim Crow's laws everywhere that would say you can't even be on stage, much less a scene where a white man sexually assaults a Black woman. So again, these were just things you didn't, you didn't depict. Um, So I love Henrietta. Uh, I have a daughter named Henrietta. <laughs> That's another reason I like I like her. She deserves more attention for sure. And I have this dream of somehow having uh, our old Kentucky home produced <laughs> one of these days just to see this reversal play uh, really play out in front in, in front of our eyes. So when does the pushback reach enough of proportion that they that they change the lyric that they start singing the version we sing today? Right. And the the main substitution that happens is that the word, the D word becomes people or folks or old folks sometimes. But yeah, so so officially that really starts to change in the 
1950s, I would say. There were some performers, black and white, who began making those changes, like Paul Robeson. And uh, but it was controversial to do that. And even in the 50s, it was controversial to do that. It was contested for a long time. And the NAACP would protest this, you know, regularly. And they especially became active protesting the, the lyrics in the 50s um, and when they were being broadcast on these, you know, television and radio shows. Um because that was, you know, there, there was at least one big pressure point, you know, to you know, go to CBS or go to NBC and say, can you please stop broadcasting versions of the song that use this word? You know, fascinatingly, the, the media did seem to start to hear that, but there was such a backlash that they backed off for another five or 10 years and <laughs> went back to saying, okay, if it's, especially if it's in, if it's a state song, we won't, <laughs> we won't mess with this national treasure, which is Stephen Foster, because by that time, Stephen Foster had been enshrined. Uh, his bust was in the, uh, you know, was installed in the Library of Congress, you know, rotunda. Um, we had a penny stamp with his his face, his likeness on it. You know, there were you know people recording, I and mean, he was in every single songbook. You know, and my old Kentucky home was almost always like the first one of his songs to 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 be you know included. So the you know the change it happens gradually. I mean, the reality is in some places the you know the change is is done by 1950, and in some places it's not done until the mid 60s. As far as the Derby itself, the lyrics are not changed until 1973, I believe, was the first year that the D word is is removed from the official you know pam, you know Derby program. So Kentucky adopts the song as its anthem in 1928, not long before the Derby adopts it as well. And the, you know, again, there were school children in Kentucky singing in its original form all, you know, every decade up until the 80s. But then there were some that sang it in a cleansed form. And so it was not until 1986 that action was taken to officially change it. And that was prompted by this remarkably unusual chain of events by which a group of Methodist-sponsored Japanese college students came to Kentucky. They've been spending the summer in Ohio and they were on, you know, being tourists through the state and they'd been to my old Kentucky home. They stopped over in Frankfurt, our capital. There's some kind of legislative session going on and they get up into the gallery to be observers and they do exactly what they know to do because they've learned Stephen Foster songs themselves in school in Japan. And they stand up and sing my old Kentucky home the way they learned it. There was a minor sort of ruffling of feathers because the one single uh, black member of the house of representatives here sat down instead of continuing to stand after he heard that song. You know, we all stand for this song. It is like when the national anthem comes on at the ballpark, you stand up. And Carl Hines sat down and he then was able to get a resolution passed to strip the D word from the official state song. That was 1986. And it's interesting because, you know, 
there are people who go to the Derby now that were probably singing the original lyrics in their lifetime. And so it's not like the nostalgia for that version of the song has gone away for some people. This all does sort of come to a head again in 2020 after police shoot and kill Breonna Taylor in her literal Kentucky home in Louisville, Kentucky. And when that happens, this was also the protests responding to it took place during the early days of the COVID pandemic. Uh, George Floyd had been killed and the Derby gets postponed and they decide to handle the song a little differently. What do they do in 2020? So the Derby is postponed and it's held to an empty grandstand. What they did is there were calls for a change. There were people who were saying, you know, this is, you know, a song that hurt Black people for decades, generations. It's time to stop. And there was a lot of anticipation about it. You know, so the racing press covered it and Mitch McConnell weighed in, our senator from Kentucky, and said, you know, that all those problems were fixed back sometime ago. (laughs) And that it was, you know, an absolute essential part of Kentucky and America, and they would never, ever do anything to change it. But they they did make an interesting compromise. Instead of, well, there was really no one to sing it. (laughs) They didn't bring a singer in, um, which they never do for this song. It's a crowd song. It is sung by the the mass, right? And we're talking 150,000 people often, right? But In this case, they simply had the bugler who does the call to the post uh, come up and instead of a a marching band, he did this solo version of the song with no vocals, no vocalizations. And it was almost like taps is the way I I, I experienced it, that there was a uh, sadness and somberness to that delivery that was I think, uh, intended to be um, aligned with the times we were living through and are living through. One of my worries is that, you know, we can get so caught up in the conversation about, you know, should songs change or should flags change or should monuments change? And then we kind of ignore the, the very real systemic issues that are being raised by groups like Black Lives Matter that deal with, you know, police brutality and education and health inequities and things like that. But we can have both of those conversations at the same time. But is there the risk that the disproportionate backlash you get from the white community by bringing songs like this into question inflames them so much that we don't have the thoughtful conversations about the other part? I guess that's where I I, I don't know. That's where I kind of sit right now. Yeah, I mean, I go back to the 80s when this song, you know, had in Kentucky, at least had this moment where, oh, my gosh, we're going to clean up the lyrics officially. Like, didn't oh, I guess we didn't do that. And, you know, then people cling to it all, you know, sometimes. But but basically, most people were like, good, good, good riddance. You know, (laughs) but if they talked about it at all, I mean, my research shows there was extremely little discussion. And here we are today, you know ripping it to shreds and we could go on. But but I, I, I like your question. I think it's important. But I think the way we have shoved the reality of our cultural investment in things that establish and have institutionalized hierarchies um, and stereotypes, that way of sort of like saying, okay, we fixed it, we took the word out, that hasn't worked out very well. 
it does not acknowledge the hurt and the anger that this kind of culture constantly has perpetrated. And it doesn't allow for the process of thinking. I mean, I love the name of your organization, The Reckon, because reckoning is a word that that calls on us to sit with something, to reckon, to think, and then to sort of internalize almost, right? I reckon, then you think about it, you have a view. Um, so to me, the reckoning, the hope in reckoning is not to cancel or inflame or, you know, spend all of our time on, you know, I mean, to be fair, the the civil rights movement didn't spend a whole lot of time on Stephen Foster. They had a lot of bigger fish to fry. And the same is true today. But this song goes to the heart. It goes to so many people's hearts. And how it came to do that, I think, can reveal something about how our hearts have been told to forget. And I just believe that that can take us to a new place of being readier to take on the larger issues and stay with them for the duration that they require to reach a new place of equity and dignity. Well, that's well said, Emily. I thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. And I hope everybody picks up a copy of My Old Kentucky Home, The Astonishing Life and Reckoning of an Iconic American Song. Uh, And then we think about the things that we love and where those things came from and, and what that says about us. Thank you. And that's our show, folks. Thank you to Emily Bingham for joining us this week and sharing her research and her wisdom. I promise you that we just barely scratched the surface when it comes to the history of this song, so I encourage you to pick up a copy of My Old Kentucky Home at your favorite local bookstore. And look, I want to be clear, our goal with this podcast and with conversations like these isn't to say, hey, you can't like or love this thing that's important to you. We're just offering you an invitation to think deeply about how and why we maybe came to love these things and the ways that that has shaped American culture. And if you like what we're doing, help us out by leaving us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts and by sharing the show with your friends. The Reckon Interview is executive produced and hosted by me, John Hammontree. It's edited by Kanika Codrington and the fine folks over at Edit Audio. And until next time, thanks for reckoning with me.